yeah, Tamale, yourself and myself are barely holding it together. And then just to explain to the listeners, I'm looking at you, Mary, and you're wearing a blazer and a brooch and a pearl necklace. That's not a brooch. That's a symbol of the 2030 agenda with its 17 sustainable and development goals. It looks like a brooch, honestly. It's, It's the only emblem or whatever you might call it of the UN that I've ever liked because it goes with everything. Because it's got all the colours. Oh, I love wow. it. Because, OK, just to explain what it looks like, it's like a circle with all different colours. And yeah, and those 17 goals are somehow represented in there. That's right. And those 17 goals are? Well, I, I, I won't bore you. What's your favourite one? My favourite one is probably goal five on gender equality, or it might be goal 13 on yeah. climate, or it might be goal 16 on justice and peace and oh wow all those, you know oh that's brilliant yes. oh mary <laughs> i should have known you weren't just wearing a brooch with not no meaning behind yeah, exactly. it exactly exactly <laughs> <laughs> hello everyone welcome to season three episode four of mothers of invention i'm thimali kodikara and i'm its series producer and my name is Old Muddy Boots Higgins. I'm a comedian and a writer. And I'm Mary Robinson, former president of Ireland and chair of the Elders. And I suppose, you know, from May's little um, quip back there, <laughs> that we finally arrived at our agriculture episode. And that's great. So many of the most inspiring climate <laughs> leaders I've met are farmers. Uh... It is indeed Mary, Maeve Higgins. I think you might have accidentally been looped into Mary's compliment there, aren't you, from a farming family? Yeah, I'm going to take that as a compliment, Mary. My granddad was a farmer and farming is in my family. Um, But I think that's the case for a lot of Irish people. There's farming in probably all of our blood. Mary, I, I, I vaguely remember something about you suggesting veganism for the planet and you getting some flack about that. I didn't specifically uh, say vegan for the planet, Mm -hmm. but I do recall I was taking part in a One Young World meeting in Ottawa in 2016. 2,000 young people, Mm -hmm. exciting group, um, wanting to change the world. And I said, you know, I think we need to think about how we will reduce our emissions and everybody has to take responsibility. So I think you should think about maybe eating less meat, maybe becoming vegetarian or even vegan, I said. And I was cheered to the echo. And that was (laughs) that. As you should. But then it came back to Ireland as a broadcast and I got an official letter from Mayo County Council, Mayo being where I'm from and where I had my uh, home until recently. And uh, the official letter said that um, I I should withdraw those remarks. Wow. That was 2016. (laughs) I actually think, you know, happily a lot has changed since then. I think we've moved forward. I think farmers and others, we all know um, we have to talk about uh, ways in which we can reduce emissions in the farming sector as a whole and yet produce good food and good food security, which is vital. So farmers have to be and are essential to this argument. So we're seeing an arc develop now. In our first episode, we realised that we don't actually want to go back to how things were before lockdown because we'd rather build back better But then we also realised that we needed to take a really good look at our past first to put climate justice in our sights. So in episode two on reparations, we looked at the effects that 
European colonization had, not only on occupied societies, but on occupied landscapes. And then in episode three on immigration and migration, we talked about how that destabilization forced people to migrate away from their ancestral homes in search of food and shelter. But what if we were able to rejuvenate dead land and make it rich for food production again, but also make it super climate friendly as well? Yeah, it's a great question to investigate, Pamali, because smart farming really could be a game changer for the climate crisis. Gassy cows and synthetic fertilizers never really feel as aggressive as burning fossil fuels, but actually those account for around a quarter of global greenhouse gas emissions. And that fact always blows my mind. Yeah, you're right about that, Maeve. And to keep global temperatures under two degrees and at 1.5 degrees, which I always emphasise, global agriculture and land use sectors will have to reduce their emissions by how much, can you guess, Maeve? I'd say around by half. No, no, even more, two thirds. Wow. So that means we have to stop mowing down forests for agriculture. In fact, we need to reforest some of that farmland and we need to maybe combine forests mm. and farmland while making it more efficient for greater food production. Wow, forests on farmland. It's hard to make sense of that. <laughs> I always think of like wide open spaces with rows of cows. Yeah. It's going to take ingenuity, smart, smart mm -hmm. agriculture for the climate. Uh, why not? So we can do it. I mean, humans can be very clever and very inventive, as we will see, I hope. <laughs> well, yeah, actually, on that point, I think you're both really going to enjoy meeting this week's guests. I've invited two totally brilliant women to join us. One is working with small family farms and the other on higher production farms. But both live and work in regions that have experienced a lot of blight for many years and still continue to. But they are looking to their communities and to the ground to completely defy the odds. Hey, Mothers of Invention listeners, you've heard or you will hear climate justice essayist Mary Hegler on this show before, and I think you like her podcast too. I do. Hot Take is an irreverent, no bullshit look at the climate crisis and all the ways we're talking or not talking about it. Mary and her co-host, reporter Amy Westervelt, tackle everything from the intersection of police brutality and climate to the way popular TV shows are beginning to incorporate the issue and all points in between. It's equal parts feelings, facts, dad jokes and F-bombs. Hot Take is an on-ramp for anybody who wants to learn more or talk more about climate. Oh, and their weekly newsletter is also a great way to stay up to date on the climate story. So check out Hot Take wherever you get your podcasts. Vivian Sansour is the founder of the Palestine Heirloom Seed Library, and she's known locally as the Seed Queen of Palestine. She works with farmers in the West Bank, which is Palestinian land that has been occupied by Israeli forces since 1967. But once we've heard her story, I know we're all going to be applauding her resistance. So welcome, Vivian. Well, hello. Hi, Vivian. Welcome. Hi. Hello, everyone. Welcome, Vivian. Great to talk with you. It means a lot to us that you could join us for all the reasons. So thank you. Yeah, it means a lot to me to continue to be connected uh, with the global movement. Vivian, what are your memories of homegrown meals with your family? Uh, 
fruits were always something that was grown in our yard, like the grapes, the figs, the loquats. Uh, so that's something we definitely didn't uh, buy from the store. Uh, and actually, right now, as I speak to you, we are uh, during the grape harvest season. Like restaurant culture wasn't so big in my childhood. So I grew up in a small, it was really like a village. And I think my mom in particular was very much connected to uh, the kitchen and to basically nature. And so even though I grew up in the 80s, which is the time when industrial food was becoming more and more popular, she was ahead of her time uh, in the sense that she really refused uh, industrial food. So she tried to make everything uh, herself. Even when I talk about grapes, uh, she would make molasses. And then she had this belief that in winter we must drink a whole cup of molasses in the morning before we went to school for protection. And I mean, like a a small cup of coffee size, but that didn't taste so good to me as a child. I love that. So what was your relationship with the land like as a kid growing up in the West Bank? I like your questions. So when I was a, a child, the land was my life. It was everything I knew. It was my playground. I didn't really have much of a an indoor uh, life. Uh, basically, I would come mm-hmm. home from school, take off my uh, school uniform and just go outside and figure it out with my cousins. You know, we would play with soil. So soil was very important in my childhood wow. in terms of smell and touch. So in season one, we had Dr. Vandana Shiva on the show. Now, of course, she's a pioneer of seed saving and maintaining seed diversity in India. But Vivian, your work is focused on heirloom seeds that are indigenous to your land. So can you explain why that's become necessary work and also maybe how seed collecting Mm. has become a source of peace? Yeah, so an heirloom seed is exactly that, an heirloom, like uh, somebody who passed down something to you. So the reason they are precious is because they've been selected and proven across generations that you can plant this variety every year and, and it gives you the same exact characteristics. People really talk about seeds as just these things that you put in the ground and they become plants and you eat them and then, you know... But that's not what seeds are for me, and that's not why I started this work. So I'm really—I think I'm just somebody who really believes in the power of story and imagination. And the seeds really offer this platform to imagine so many different alternatives. And so— why these seeds are important to save because for with each seed there is a story that allows us to see ourselves in a whole new way to liberate our minds as we liberate our bodies from the toxins that the world has injected in us our ancestors developed these seeds over literally thousands of years Somebody here uh, had the imagination and the courage to imagine something into existence that didn't exist before. So when we're talking about the development of wheat, we are talking about a wild grass and someone had to keep selecting and keep selecting until we have the wheat we have today that we make bread with. And so that literally offered bread to the world. And... um, I think a lot about that, about what it means to, to, to come from an ancestry that offered 
bread to the world. Like, you know, the English eat cookies, the Italians eat pasta. And so when you've been taught over and over again that you're a worthless person because, you know, because of the color of your skin or because you are Palestinian or because you're black or because whatever it is, how colonization has really managed to to be very successful in convincing us that who we are is something not even worth living, uh, but only like worth consuming whatever trash they give us. Uh, saving seeds for me was so important for my community because the seeds literally are very important for the future of the world. As we face climate change, we need this diversity of seed. We need it in our toolbox so that we can face all these changes mm-hmm. that are happening that we're seeing. That's huge. That's so huge what you've just said. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that as well, because, of course, um, you can see seeds as something symbolic, but then when you actually break it down, it's a very real thing. Recently, I have been thinking a lot about people who consider a lot of my approach sometimes too unrealistic or too dreamy. Yeah. When when a farmer puts uh, seeds in the ground, these are things that look completely dead. And you put them in the ground and then you have to really have faith that this is going to someday become a lettuce that you crunch on and you eat and becomes part of your body. So with this, the local town of Batir, could you tell us about the heirloom seeds and these, you know, a thousand year old farming practices? Sure, I love to speak about Batir so much. Uh, my seed library lives in Batir. Oh. I consider that my community. And Batir is a gorgeous place. Once you visit Batir, your life is changed forever. It is quite a paradise. And it's no coincidence that actually people in Batir don't call their terraces farms. They call mm-hmm. it the paradises. And when you say, I'm going to f- to my farm, you say... And Raya Jnan, and and Jnan is plural for Jannah, and Jannah means paradise. Mm-hmm. It is the epitome of agrobiodiversity in, in in live color. Wow. Uh, one story that I found whilst we were digging around is about the Jadul watermelon seeds. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you'd tell us that story because it's so beautiful. Everybody loves this story. <laughs> <laughs> it really is a story about how story really can start something new. And and the reason I started looking for these watermelon seeds is actually because so many elders shared with me the story of the watermelon. And I was living in uh, Jenin in the north, uh, which is where this watermelon is, is famous. They were so proud to talk about their heritage as one that offered the whole region uh, a delicious succulent fruit. Um, a fruit, by the way, that grows with zero irrigation. So uh, the Jadui watermelon uh, is a watermelon that grows with no water. This sounds like a magical substance. Well, this is why these seeds are so important, because we have a whole series of varieties that our ancestors developed that grow with zero irrigation. So they didn't try to force nature to do anything for them. 
they actually surrender to nature and to the microclimate. And so they are seeds that live off of the moisture retained in the soil from the rainy season. Wow. You know, you, you know, men would be so proudly telling me how they used to go on trucks with their fathers to Lebanon, mm-hmm. to Damascus to deliver, you know, these delicious fruits. And now I ask you, where is it? And you say, oh, you're asking about the dinosaurs. So for me, the loss of this watermelon felt like the loss of who we are. How did it die out? Uh, So apparently there are several reasons why it died out. One of them is that with the introduction of chemical agriculture, the soil Mm. structure completely changed. Mm. And so there were new diseases that actually we're still struggling with today as we are trying to replant and recultivate this variety. Uh, But also a big part of it was, of course, restriction of movement. So when people no longer were able to send it to everywhere in the world, so it wasn't as economically viable. But most importantly, the hybrid seed uh, that Israeli agribusiness companies tried out with farmers in Palestine. So it's important to understand when we're talking about Palestinian farmers that actually we have been the rat lab for Israeli agribusiness so-called innovation. So where where is the best place to try out these new things that you develop? Oh, of course, uh, the West Bank. When you have your heirloom seeds, you also have complete control over what you have and what you grow, and you don't depend on somebody outside of uh, yourself. But We became dependent on Israeli agribusiness for seeds. We became dependent on uh, Israeli agribusiness for all kinds of farm inputs. And so, again, it's why the story is important. Story is important because over generations, the story of farmers changed from, wow, we are the people who feed the people in the city to we are the workers who just do what we are told. Uh, Vivian, I'm still very, very keen to know, how did you bring the seeds back? One day, uh, a friend of mine told me to go visit uh, this guy who now is a a dear friend of mine and an amazing farmer who I work with a lot. His passion is heirloom seeds. Uh, But most people don't go ask him for that. They go asking him for whatever, how can I kill whatever pest Mm. I have. So I walked in his shop the first time and I said, hey, I heard you're into heirloom seeds. And he sort of like dismissed me like, who's this crazy woman? I went the second time. (laughs) And then finally I came the third time and I actually had given up conversation with him. Like, But something in me said, oh, let me ask him if he's even heard of this Jadduai. And I said, well, have you heard of the Jadduai watermelon? And he goes, you know about the Jadduai? So that kind of sparked his interest. Okay, I'll pay attention yeah. to this woman. She, she, she knows something. So he opened his drawer that's full of everything, his screwdrivers, his nails, his torn up papers from 100 years ago. And he started to take out these seeds and he put them on the table. And he's like, you want Jadduai? This is the Jadduai. Take it. Nobody wants it. And for me, also, when he said, take it, nobody wants it, was a, was a major moment for me. Because what does it yeah. mean to not want who you are? So you then took them and developed? Yeah, I took them and I started working with farmers. I wanted to 
put them in different farms because I, mm. I wasn't sure, you know. First of all, they were old, so I wasn't sure how viable they were. Yeah. Um, and second, I, I really wasn't sure who I can trust to be a, a good guardian of, of the seed. Mm. Uh, and to be honest, uh, most our efforts failed except for one really successful effort uh, in Jenin, uh, which makes so much sense because that's where the watermelon mm. Yeah. really comes from, and that should tell you something, too. Uh, and that farmer, Abu Ayman, he was able to produce a whole lot of seeds that we are now able to have and share. That's such a good end to the story. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just wanted to ask you about how you went from collecting those seeds then to um, linking with farmers, educating farmers. I don't educate anybody. The farmers have been my educators I have learned everything I know through their really diligent work in farms and also... Yeah, that's a good point. Yep. Uh, you know, who am I really? Like, the, I mean, I, I work with people who have had their hand in the soil since the day they were born and they didn't go to Los Angeles and come back like I did. They stayed, they endured, uh, and they've built these terraces that I like to climb on and, and enjoy. I would like to ask you one question, Vivian, because it's, it's just interesting to me. Um, do you think there is a value in adapting seeds to make them more resilient, which is a lot of discussion now? Or do you think the organic seeds, the one that you're talking about, are in themselves more resilient? Uh, I don't think either or, actually. Yeah. Of course, my interest is in heirloom varieties. Mm. I mean, the world changes. The world is a yeah. dynamic thing. Uh, and nature's also changing and, and calling us to constantly be imaginative. Hmm. Uh, first of all, plant breeding has been ongoing since the beginning of time. This is why we have the food we have today. Mm. Yeah. And, and that yeah. requires a lot of really scientific effort on the part of farmers. I always say farmers are truly scientists and artists because you, you have to apply your imagination and you have to apply observation, which is science. And traditional wisdom. Yeah. Yeah. So basically... I think that we do need to be informed by traditional wisdom and at the same time be willing uh, to try new things, to engage in plant breeding for the future that is not uh, so invasive as uh, genetically uh, modified crops. Got it. I also really wanted to ask about your traveling kitchen because it's such a brilliant way of sharing this information because something I've also learned through researching this episode is that the best way to encourage this more climate friendly style of, mm -hmm. of growing is peer to peer exchange. The kitchen is such a great idea. Well, thank you. I love it too. Yeah. One constant thing the farmers always said is like, okay, we like it. We're willing to take this chance with you. We're willing to put this work. But like in the end, we are not making money because people don't want to buy this stuff. We need to make money, which is obviously a very legitimate concern. And so I love cooking. And for me, cooking is, is very therapeutic. But it's also a way to engage people. And I was also really inspired by um, several women that I had visited throughout uh, my work where, like, for example, they sit to make maftoul and they, you know, the maftoul is like the 
Palestinian couscous, like small pasta thing. It's a process. And so they sit and they tell, oh, what did your husband do yesterday? Oh, my God, this happened. That happened. Oh, I can't believe it. (laughs) Uh, And so everybody shares a story through doing something together. And so I felt like the best way for us to get people excited about buying these new varieties and eating them and wanting to try them is to literally want to eat your history. And then I sat down with my partner, Ayed, uh, who is an artist, and he sketched for me a kitchen that has wheels and that can come apart and fit in my car. Wow. And I and I was like, oh, my God, uh, I want this and I want it now. <laughs> and so uh, he had never made such a thing. So it was a, an amazing collaboration between the art world and the kitchen world because he really just disappeared for a couple of weeks. And the next thing I know is I, I have this magical kitchen that comes apart, fits in my car, and I go around like a fairy tale. And I didn't know what would happen, really. And I don't like to necessarily know. I, I love the <laughs> I love the unexpected to just... Spontaneity, yeah. So children came, elders came, women, everybody came. Like, what is this? Like, what is this thing that's suddenly in the middle of the village? And, uh, and then the conversation started. Oh, we're cooking these heirloom beans. Uh, oh, what? The heirloom beans? All of this for the heirloom yeah. beans? Uh, the heirloom yeah. beans are important like that? And so that started a conversation. Why the heirloom beans are important like that? And then a guy would say, well, came and he was like, I thought you had meat. And I'm like, I don't have meat, but this is like, this is some fine beans right there. So um, so he's like, what do you mean? We are the people of the beans. And then this other guy who was not from the same village was like, no, we are the people of the beans. And so all of a sudden, these guys who were not interested in the beans Ended up like competing. Who are the people of the beans? And uh, we had also an amazing conversation about why it's important to eat our heritage rather than store it in some refrigerator somewhere in the past and talk about it as some relic of the past. Hmm. Wow, that is amazing. That's a great story. Do you know what's great about your capacity to tell stories like that is you do link it also with what it is to have dignity. One of the things that I bring away as a sad memory of various visits to the occupied Palestinian territories is the humiliation of the people again and again, trying to go into Gaza, trying to go anywhere, trying to go from Jerusalem to Ramallah. Not a very long distance. I saw a woman in a wheelchair being humiliated, left in the middle and almost thrown through the turnstile that she had to go through. She was pushed through like a bag of rubbish to the wheelchair on the other side. And I can see from the way you tell your stories that part of it is to uh, have the seeds affirm the culture and dignity of the Palestinian people. What is dignity? Yeah. It's to be in full alignment with who you are and to be brave enough to stand for it no matter what is in front of you. And I think that is something easy to do when you know who you are. And so the humiliation is doesn't really fall upon us when a woman is pushed over in a wheelchair. 
the humiliation should be really felt by the person who has been unable to be true to who they are, to who God created them to be, to their soul, to the point where they do follow orders like that. Yeah. What is happening all over the world? We are being constantly told and forced to abandon who we truly feel we are and to adopt and to be and to pretend things that are not real that we call happiness, but they actually are so hollow because they really, like at the end of the day, when people go to mm -hmm. bed, I don't know, like if, if, if what you did today isn't in alignment of who your spirit is, then, you know, you should really look into why you're doing what you're doing. And it's really not worth surviving. Like I do not, I'm not interested in surviving uh, just to survive. I'd rather die than, t than to live undignified. You remind me of, you know, and this was my gospel when I was High Commissioner for Human Rights, but it's still my gospel, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And Article 1 says, and I can always quote it easily, all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. And I've often had conversations that dignity comes before rights. And I've rarely heard somebody talk about dignity as well as you have today. <laughs> Our audience definitely will want to stay in touch with you after they've heard this interview. So how can they do that? How can they learn more about you and your work and follow your progress? So people can follow my Instagram, which is Vivian, V-I-V-I-E-N dot Sansur, S-A-N-S-O-U-R. Or follow us on Facebook, uh, Elbir, E-L-B-E-I-R, Arts and Seeds. Uh, we also have a Facebook page, the Palestine Heirloom Seed Library, and uh, hopefully very soon a website. You're amazing, Vivian. Really appreciate it. This week's listener soundscape is from Phoebe in Cairo, Egypt, and she's been living there for three years while working with the UN on climate. So let's listen into what she's noticed since lockdown. I live right on the banks of the River Nile, in the city centre. I have absorbed this unrelenting heartbeat as background noise. Loud voices, car horns and Mahaganat music that reverberates late into the night. Most nights, I'll sit on my balcony and watch the city bustle along the banks of this great river. On the 25th of March, 2020, the Egyptian government imposed a curfew to stop the spread of the coronavirus. The city fell silent. You could finally hear the call to prayer reverberate, uninterrupted, over the waters of the Nile. Cicadas and bullfrogs, the natural sounds of the riverbank, chorused late into the night, no longer drowned out by the party boats. I honestly didn't even realize they existed in the city until that moment. I always wondered what Cairo would be like without the incessant hum of humans. What it would have sounded like when the Fatimids founded it over a thousand years ago. Coronavirus had offered me a once in a lifetime view of what that world would have looked like. Cool. 
cool. The call to prayer sounds fabulous, doesn't it? Oh, it's beautiful, yeah. So I know Egypt has this massive population that are really vulnerable to climate change. Yeah, 250 million people uh, rely on the River Nile for water. But it's at risk of drying out by 2080 from hotter weather. And there is some tension with Ethiopia on how that river water is going to be used and distributed because they're developing a large dam. But hopefully lockdown will give them some breathing room to develop new ways to adapt. So our next guest has been working on a quiet revolution in Colombia. Zoraida Calle is collaborating with farmers across the region on ecological restoration, and in particular, a system called silvopasture that is really breathing new life into the land. So welcome, Zoraida. Thank you for coming to chat to us. Oh, thank you so much. Hi, Zoraida. Hello. Hi, Zoraida. Nice to meet you. Lovely to meet you. I'm wondering what inspired your love of nature. I cannot trace back the the origin to my love of nature. It's just too old. Um, yeah. <laughs> I've always been fascinated by huge lush gardens and forests and the rainforests and monkeys. It's it's a very old fascination. I can imagine. And are you from a farming family? Uh, well, yes and no. I am from a farming family, but the relation with farms was cut down for almost one generation as a result of the generalized violence in Colombia in the 1950s. Many families moved into cities trying to escape um, from that situation. And that's the reason why both of my parents grew up in the city of, of Medellin and, and went to college, studied medicine in the city of Medellin. So then when I was a little girl, they bought um, a farm that was in the 1970s. Oh, I see, I see, I see. I remember when I visited Colombia, it was my first time visiting as UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. It would have been about 1998 or 99. I visited Bogota first and such a beautiful country and such lovely people and such terrible violence. I couldn't believe yes. it, that combination. Yes. Zoraida, um, what role did the civil war play um, for your family? How does it affect you? Um, I have never known a single day of peace in my whole life. Yeah. Um, yeah. All of Colombian history for the last century has been a succession of different types of wars and civil conflict. So uh, there was this violence of the 1950s, and then this was the, there was the internal conflict related to the narco-traffic. And then after our really imperfect peace process, now we are beginning to see different forms of violence emerging. So um, it's, it's just like the background of your life when you live in Colombia. In our last episode, we discussed the dry corridor in Central America and the migration from the social unrest and, and food insecurity that it's caused. Are you making the same connections in Colombia? What we have been seeing is um, lots of displaced communities. And this has been going on for several decades. People trying to take control over large areas of land and causing uh, the peasants to move away and mostly relocate in our cities. So this has changed rural landscapes a lot and this has uh, broken down 
uh, small communities. And of course, there is a huge amount of violence behind this. And I, and, and I don't completely understand this. I'm uh, not very good at politics. I, I just try to navigate. Well, what I'd love to hear about is your work with CPAV and restorative agriculture. What is that? Okay, so CPAV is the Center for Research on Sustainable Agricultural Production Systems. We are a very unique organization because we are a research center and an NGO. Uh, so we're not attached to a university and we don't have direct uh, government core funding. We dedicate ourselves to the transformation of agriculture, trying to make it more biodiversity friendly and more sustainable. And um, uh, in Colombia, most of agriculture is cattle ranching. 86% of the land dedicated to, to food production is under cattle ranching. So inevitably, this is one of the largest issues in CPAV. We also work with ecological restoration, which is the small group that I coordinate uh, within CPAV. Are you familiar with Project Drawdown? Yes. I'm familiar with Project Drawdown. And something that makes me really happy is that uh, they ranked silvopastoral systems uh, within the top global solutions for climate change. Yeah. That made us so proud and so happy. And it was a big surprise. <laughs> so Project Drawdown is a brilliant resource that names and rates solutions which very successfully draw greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. And it named silvopasture as the 11th most powerful solution to keep us at 1.5 degrees centigrade at the end of the century. So Zoraida, what is silvopasture exactly? And why is it a carbon sink? Silvopasture is the deliberate combination of trees, palms and, and shrubs, I mean woody vegetation with grasses for feeding livestock in grazing systems. So these are grazing systems that try to imitate the structure of a forest. One of the main principles is that cattle should not walk to look for water, but water should be available for the cattle within the paddocks. Um, another important feature is very careful rotational grazing. So cattle should not stay in the same area for a long time. They should move constantly from one paddock uh, to the next. And something that also seems really amazing about silvopastoral system is that you're growing at different heights above the ground uh, through shrubs and things, but also on trees. So it's multiple food sources that can be grown and harvested at different points in the year. Yes, and, and it's very beautiful to observe when you go to a pastoral system and you just watch the cows, their feeding behavior, you see them move from the grasses to the shrubs and then eating some fruits from trees and they're continuously combining different food sources just like we do. So basically we understand that it's a big mistake uh, thinking that grass monocultures are the perfect habitat for cattle. They are not. They prefer to yeah. choose their own food just the same as we do. And they love to eat fruits. Uh, and this is also very important because you can bring in plants that will make them release less methane from their gut. 
So actually you can cut down methane emissions by bringing some uh, certain specific plants uh, into the sibopastoral system. So it's one of those wonderful nature-based solutions. And how do, the, uh, how do the crop yields and the yields from the cattle compare with standard farms? I can tell you about a specific conventional farm that was already very efficient. It produced above 8,000 liters of milk per hectare per year. And after transitioning to intensive silvopastoral systems, they produced 18,000. Wow. So it's more than double. Wow. Wow. You know, what I like about your whole approach is the idea of linking trees and grass and shrubs in a way that uh, builds a kind of ecosystem of itself. Um, okay. Uh, th- this has a little bit of a personal story behind because... We like personal stories. <laughs> <laughs> My husband is a veterinarian. Yeah. And he's an expert in sustainable cattle ranching. So uh, he he just loves cattle and he has this uh, very positive view about the things that cattle can achieve. Mm. And um, um, I came into this marriage like the tree lady. My, my <laughs> obsession in life was always trees. So I think about silvopastoral systems like such a beautiful way of bringing together both of our interests in a harmonic way that works for everything, for, for us, of course, as a couple, but also for nature. And it just makes sense. How scalable is a silvopastoral farm? You're working with medium-sized farms, I think, but what about big agribusiness? Can we really do it anywhere in the world? Because it seems so good to be true. It works from the very, very, very small scale to the scale of hundreds or even thousands of hectares. It just adapts. Because um, silvopastoral systems are not a recipe, they are... Um, a set of principles that you apply to transform your farming system. Uh, Large farms have to go stage by stage and work like small areas uh, at a time uh, before completing the transformation of the whole farm, while small farms can be transformed in one year or two maybe. Maeve, given your farming background, and I just wonder, are you taking notes to take back to County Cork by any chance? (laughs) I honestly am. I mean, it just sounds like such a no-brainer. You know, it sounds so straightforward. And I was looking it up and currently 2.7 billion acres of land worldwide are suitable for this silvopasture. So I guess my question, Zoraida, is what is stopping everybody? Why isn't it more commonplace? Okay, that's that's the key question there. What what are the barriers? So first, mm-hmm. uh, there is knowledge, because um, these are complex systems. You yeah. you really need to understand the agro ecosystem and the interrelations yes. between species, uh, because you have to to build something that works efficiently like a natural ecosystem. So knowledge is one of the main barriers. Um, And there is also an important investment to start your silvopastoral system. You have to plant the the, uh, fodder shrubs and you have to plant the trees and you have to um, bring in the electric fencing system and you have to uh, guarantee that animals have high quality water in each paddock and that requires an investment. So that would be the second really important uh, barrier. And, And those are basically the main ones. 
It's information and investment. Mm-hmm. Knowledge and uh, and investment. But the good part about the investment side of this is, is that this investment can be recovered really fast. If farmers have access to capital to implement the system, um, we're fairly sure that they will be able to recover this investment soon. Really, it's been a wonderful pleasure to talk with you, Sarayda. Um, do please stay in touch with us. And I hope everyone listening stays abreast of your work um, on this because silvopasture is a real solution for our future and you're doing very critical work there. Can you just share with our listeners how they can stay in touch with you, what your contacts are? So we have our CPAV webpage. And that's at cpav.org.co, I believe. And on the Mothers of Invention website or on our social media platforms, of course, which is consistently a very exciting place to be if you want to keep learning about all of our mothers and other brilliant feminist climate leaders around the world or watch some additional video content or if you enjoy a good quiz or you want to be part of the show by submitting your own soundscape. And that's on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at Mothers Invent. Very kind of you to join us and please stay in touch with us, Raida. Thank you very much. I don't know about you two, but I'm feeling pretty good about the world after listening to Vivian and Zoraida. I mean, unearthing a path to food justice in such volatile areas, it could relieve entire regions of so much pressure, let alone the incredible carbon sink. And not to mention, I feel pretty inspired to farm all my own food now. (laughs) Yeah, I think they were fantastic guests and I'm looking forward to following their work too, definitely. I loved the way Vivian talked about dignity and about her passion for the seeds because they were part of the culture, part of the identity, part of looking forward. Mm. And I thought there was something of that in Zoraida as well. They were really good because they spoke from the heart and they spoke very knowledgeably, actually, about our links with nature in a particular way. And I think... Uh, We need to bring that out and women need to really reinforce that, you know, uh, that our way forward out of both COVID and the climate crisis is to be more linked to nature and to stop the injustice of the destroying of Mm -hmm. biodiversity, the extinction of species. Yeah. Yeah, I'm learning so much this season. I can't believe that we're halfway through already. So what's on the menu for next week, Tamali? Well, now we've got a great sense of the agricultural systems that can get us moving. As Zoraida just said, we need strong ecosystems to keep our land, oceans and atmosphere clean and thriving. So next time we're going to get into the magic of biodiversity and specifically what the ancient and modern techniques we can use to protect or redesign our natural environments are. So I suppose that means listeners can bide their time by catching up on all those comical minisodes that both of you have been doing since then. Uh, Too much giggling in my view, but (laughs) not enough work. Mary, I'm just delighted that you're listening to them. I need to know what you two are up to. (laughs) What do you mean? (laughs) Keeping an ear on us. Um, You know, I caught up with our friend Tara Hauska and all of her wins for Indigenous tribes in the US. Nice. Um, I also planted a tomato plant from Tamale on my street. Yeah, looking um, beautiful, Maeve. Good. And what else did we do? Oh, I told Donald Trump to fix the fish problem, but he hasn't written back to me yet. 
uh, he may be just having a tough time sending you a letter, Maeve. You know, it, 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 he's not enthusiastic about letters being delivered these days or voting papers. I know, I know, it's true. Mothers of Invention is brought to you by Vulcan Productions and Doc Society. Our series producer is Timali Kodikara. Our development producer is Shanita Scotland. Our Minnesota producer is India Rakison. Our editor is Sifaniki and our sound designer is Sami El Anani. Rebecca Lucy Mills is our line producer and our engineer is Lisa Hack. Our social media strategist is Imriel Morgan for Content is Queen. Our impact producer is Kwan Latif Hill. Our partnerships lead is Misha Nesta. And Aisha Yunus oversees our satellite project, Climate Reframe, for BAME climate leaders in the UK. The executive producers are Jody Allen, Ruth Johnston, Matt Milius, Jess Search and BD Finzi. Team Vulcan is Andrea Dramer, Susan Grella, Kimberly Nyhouse, Alex Pearson and Ted Rashane. Vivian's audio was recorded at Power Group in Bethlehem, Palestine. And Zoraida's audio was recorded by Emmanuel Giraldo Betancourt in Cali, Colombia. Our theme tune was written by Jamie Pereira and we are proudly distributed by PRX.